That crank makes your jimmy thicker. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Keeping with the theme of our last podcast... The Minnesota Misanthrope and I discuss wrestling in further detail. This time, it's the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Uh, this departure from our typical show turned out to be kind of fun. We used it as a way to connect. Uh, we watched via Skype and FaceTime a couple Royal Rumbles. And, uh, you know, just as two old friends getting together to, to talk about stuff, uh, you know, we, we sort of fell into an old rhythm of ours. I can honestly say that this isn't really where at the time I wanted the podcast to go, but I was open and willing to, to explore new territory. Maybe, maybe, at least in my mind, maybe this is an entertainment-only podcast. Maybe the ethical conversations and the progress that I wanted to achieve in the previous shows, maybe that wasn't what I was meant to do. So, in order to further define myself as a podcaster, I had to reach you know across the aisle to my co-host and see what he wanted to do, and then also engage in it fully. So, this is my attempt to just have fun. Uh, I think you'll notice in the show that I do sort of try to bring this into an intellectual realm. I try to talk about it intellectually. Uh, but for the most part, it's just us discussing the phenomena of wrestling in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it played a fairly big part in my life as a child. I can't say that it had lasting effects. I certainly don't watch it now. I'm more of a hockey and MMA kind of guy. Uh, with less and less interest in MMA, the more I get interested in hockey. But that's sort of new neither here nor there. So, first you'll hear the introduction of my co-host, and then we'll break down the storied career of Ted, the Million Dollar Man, DiBiase. And now, ladies and gentlemen, welcome my co-host, Mr. Monocane himself, Minnesota's own, the Midwest misanthrope. Sure, let's talk about Ted DiBiase. Let's talk about Ted DiBiase. The reason why Ted DiBiase has come up is just for you know, point of reference, talking about 80s wrestling. And we're also going around the obvious. The Hulk Hogan, the Warrior, Andre the Giant, we're going around these, these guys in order to focus on being an admirer as a child, watching these guys, and then re-watching the 80s wrestling and still being able to laugh your ass off for the fact of how over the top it was, and then also appreciating how great this genre was because it was so over the top. So we're waving the flag, we're paying homage to all the, I guess, kind of heels that were in this business that helped 
make the bigger superstars even, you know, if it wasn't for these guys to get stepped on, the superstars wouldn't look as good. So we're just paying homage, paying homage to these characters and their unique personalities. Let's, uh, let, let's go. Ted DiBiase. The guy walks out to money, money, money. He's got the evil chuckle. He's got the Virgil Butler. He's got the million dollar belt. What's going on? How'd this guy get here? What's he all about? Probably the best part about Ted DiBiase is his his character was more about his personality of looking down on everybody because he has money, just being a dick. And uh, there's so many wonderful examples about this guy being a complete asshole of a character. He was a terrible actor. I also remember the fact that his acting was so terrible, but it was so perfect because the guy, whenever he got punched, it looked like he was a carp out of water. He'd flop a twitch, and he'd overact it, and it was just it, it was just amazing. It was comical, and the guy was on the mat probably more than he was actually standing up. The look of him with the, with the feathered kind of mullet, not full mullet look, blonde hair, Baby face. The guy was truly a unique addition to to the to the world of wrestling. I, I looked up some history on the guy. Do you do you want to know a little bit about this? Where he came from? Or yeah, totally. I mean, whatever you got. I, I've got a couple additions to make too. Just in the his his debut, not his debut, but his his role in sort of the rise of of these superstars, like you mentioned, cool. and and how he tried to bring it bring himself along with them through through this ridiculous idea that he has all this money, which he doesn't seem to. I mean, there's no reason to think he actually has any money other than the couple hundred dollars that he's throwing around in the events at kids and, you know, what he's calling poor people or, or whatever. And the, this ridiculous idea that he bought another person, the Virgil, <laughs> that he bought him from Bobby the Brain Heenan and, and just all this stuff. Like, yeah. it's just absurd. And and, <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just, it makes for good, it makes for good drama, which yeah. I'm watching. I'm actually watching right now the, the, the fight where Hogan was beaten by Andre the Giant for the belt. Oh, oh, and the, yes. and the million dollar man walks away with the belt around his waist. So he had Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan to get him the belt is what he said. He bought the belt. Yep. Yep. That's and, uh, uh yeah, it is pretty funny, but you go ahead. Yeah, tell us some history. Oh, I mean, it's such a it's such an epic moment. We'll get back to it. Um, yeah, the uh, okay. So what I found out is that he started out back in 1975 in this. I believe it was called like West Texas Wrestling. So this was kind of where I didn't know too much about this. I remember seeing it back in the day on uh, this uh, sports channel. They'd always play this stuff, and I'd see like I'd see these faces of these wrestlers, but they were under different names. So Ted DiBiase was one of these guys. He's a part of this group called the Rat Pack, uh, which was Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and some other guy. Sorry, not 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 a fanatic when it comes to wrestling, just a just an admirer. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know who the other guy was, but um, he was also a part of. Uh, he, he was like a tag team partner of the Junkyard Dog. I guess back in the day. Uh, so Junkyard Dog is another character that's just fucking. <laughs> A head scratcher, and you gotta love it. And um, but apparently these guys were like uh, these guys were tag team partners. And Ted DiBiase, when he was a tag team partner with 
junkyard dog. This was actually his stepping off point. So he was trying to figure out a way to, to get into WWF. And he, apparently he actually told uh, the manager of the West Texas Wrestling, he's just like, look, man, I'm, I'm going to be the heel from now on. I'm, I'm the guy. And for those who don't know, the heel is basically the bad guy. And um, what they do is they make they make other wrestlers that actually don't have as much skill, but maybe are more stardom quality. They they make them they they pull off the moves as if they're the victim. So they do more of the they're more focused on the gymnastics piece of, and the, the victimizing of it. And uh, so for that reason, it makes sense uh, as you can see with Ted DiBiase when he wrestles the guy. Like I said, man, he, he flops around like nobody else can flop around. And um, so what he 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 became the heel, uh, junkyard dog. This whole conflict or whatever was a big enough deal to where it captured the attention of WWF. He then transferred over there, and then uh, after a while, he embraced this persona of the Million Dollar Man. I'm sure a lot of stuff happened in between, but that's kind of the, the jumping off point. So the guy was around for quite a bit. Uh, it looks like he was actually doing stuff until like this, uh, the, maybe like the early mid '90s, and. What happened then is he he went to a WrestleMania. He he was married at the time. Got a phone call from his wife, and she basically said, "Don't come home. I know that you've been cheating on me." Blah blah blah. <laughs> and uh, which is fascinating, man, because if you think about it, the if there was if there was ever a documentary that needed to be made, in my opinion, it would be the groupies of wrestlers. You know what I mean? The 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 ones who got knocked up with wrestlers' kids. I would I would pay double the price in order to see such a movie because just to figure out what does that look like, man? What are the groupies of wrestling? What is that? Is there is there a certain breed of women that that attracts all over the place? You know what I mean? Because these guys are all road dogs. They're all traveling via cars back in the day. You know, staying at hotels or whatever, and they're just you know they're picking up whomever they can. Is it before the show? Is it after the show? What does it look like? Because the the movie The Wrestler, I mean, if they all look like Marissa Tomei, shit, man. Good for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and you can't help but look at the wife and be like, well, what do you, what do you expect? You know? What do you want them to do? You, you married a wrestler. <laughs> I mean, back to these but if they're if they're gutter trash, you know what I mean. You can't help but be like, well, these guys are just trying to fulfill the needs that you know they're they're being on the road. I mean, don't penalize for it. And, and it, I don't know. It just kind of seems like any time that there's a marriage and if there's a separation and if people are on the roads, can you can you bring up the whole different area codes? It's not cheating type of thing. But. I digress. He gets the call, and this was the incentive for Ted DiBiase to basically tap out because apparently during the interview he said, look, I did drugs, I did alcohol, and I did a lot of women. And uh, I wasn't addicted to drugs. I wasn't addicted to the alcohol. I was addicted to the women. So he then, uh, by trying, in order to save his marriage, the guy is now a minister. He's a minister? Fucking minister. Wow. The pinnacle of charlatanism, right? He started off lying and he finished with a big lie. That's awesome. It makes me wonder where the where the line is. How much of these guys' lives are show? I mean, what's interesting too is like that the cartoonish aspect of what came into play during the eighties compared to like the seriousness of what happened later on with the sports entertainment as far as the characters. You know what I mean? Like they weren't they weren't they're not fun anymore. Like they're all intense and as real as possible, right? 
And, and that's actually something that happened. Ted DiBiase got brought back into WWE later on, and they wanted him to kind of be like a guide for writing. But he, he walked away from it. He's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then that's why. He's just like, look, because everybody right now in wrestling has tattoos, shaved heads, and they're all pissed off. And he's like, and they all want, they all want to be duplicates of this Steve Austin persona. And I think that's why wrestling today just sucks balls. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's why we're, we get such a kick out of what we grew up with because it's just, it, it was fucking so over the top. It was funny and fun. Ted DiBiase's character was actually the jumping off point for, uh, Steve Austin. Steve Austin originally came into the WWF as the ringmaster and then later evolved into Stone Cold Steve Austin. In order to say how much Ted DiBiase did, we should just break down some of the cool, uh, impressive moments in wrestling history that he was a part of, man. So Hulk Hogan's debut in 1979 was against Ted DiBiase. 1979. All right. Yeah, and he beat him. Um, he beat Ted DiBiase. And, I mean, this was, this was Hogan's first, Fight and DiBiase wasn't the million dollar man at that point. He was in. He was um, announced as Ted DiBiase, and he wasn't this like huge, huge superstar. And neither was Hogan. But there was this. There was a lot of hype around it, and they were obviously. I mean, ringside, they were talking it up. But you notice a couple of things about the fight, and I've noticed this about a lot of Ted's fights: is he makes a lot of mistakes. He's not. What what I think a lot of pe- people would say, a real good wrestler. He's not that tight in his acrobatics. He's not very tight in his communication with his opponent. The right. taps on the shoulders, the taps on the hips, <laughs> the taps on the thigh to let the guy know what's happening. Yeah. We're often miscommunicated. We're often confused. And and it showed in the ring. So the... I think I think a lot of the the sensationalism had to come off the ring because he wasn't that good in the ring as far as his technique, his ability. And I mean that in the loosest sense of the word. I mean, this is a show and it's fake, but he ended up actually hurting people when he didn't mean to. He ended up screwing up stuff that should have been much more appropriately or, or meticulously choreographed. Yeah. And he did it on television in at Madison Square Garden. You know what I mean? I mean, he did it in front of everybody. And you yeah. didn't see those kind of mistakes in a lot of other wrestlers. You yeah. didn't see those kind of mistakes. Um, you see a lot of mistakes with, like, Andre the Giant. Like, just to fast forward to the Hogan-Andre uh, the Giant fight where Ted DiBiase reportedly paid Andre the Giant for the belt or whatever. He bought it is what he was claiming. Yes. Andre the Giant literally can't stand on his own will. He's always either being held up by another wrestler or he's holding on to the ropes. Yeah. He has a very difficult time just walking around. It's, it's a constant struggle. Yeah, it's, it is a very obvious constant struggle. He's winded just from, like, moving from one end of the ring to the other. And he's unable to do a lot of, a lot of the just more... <laughs> I guess, nimble moves that a lot of these guys can do. And essentially, Ted DiBiase was a, a smaller version of that type of wrestler. Like, he, yeah. he, did, he did what he had to do, but he was mostly talk. His yep. choreography was not all there. Whereas you get a guy like Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, even like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, Superfly Snuka, you get these guys that choreograph meticulously and are literally almost flawless. I mean, they really are almost flawless in the ring. And you, 
you correlate them or you, you know, you, you dissect them in comparison to a guy like DiBiase or Andre the Giant and you see a lot of mistakes. Yeah, no doubt. It's almost, and that kind of seems like that's why he was such like a flopper. Like he's such a dramatic, cause there, there are times, it, you know, you can, you can look it up fairly easy where you're watching him like freak out or like, you know, he, he, he gets on the mat. Uh, you know, he flops down on the mat, and then he churns on his back, and he just starts kicking his legs up and down. And meanwhile, you're kind of sitting there watching, going, what the fuck? You, what? Like, nothing nothing happened, right? Like, the, there wasn't, it was like a wind-up to a punch, and the punch didn't even get a chance to connect yet. And Ted DiBiase just goes down, and he just starts twitching and shit and freaking out. <laughs> yeah. Pushes himself all the way to the back, uh, to the corner of the ring, and he extends the hands out. He's like, "No, no, no, It's just this. It's almost like you're, you're, uh, you saw the mistake happen, but you're so confused as to what's going on that you're just like, "Oh, uh, you know." Then the next part of the match starts going. You're just like, "Well, I guess we're just gonna pretend like that never happened." You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. About it. Yeah, he was he he was a loud talker as well. So when it came down to when there are those grapples. You know, when they're they're talking about what the next move is going to be, you can hear Ted DiBiase clear as fucking day. Yeah, like uh, I'm going to throw you, uh, you know, I'm going to whip you against the ropes and clothesline. You know, then they do it. And, but it, it it was like you know, if you if you're a parent and if you don't like wrestling and if your kids watching wrestling, your parent will walk in and be like, Jesus, they're talking. You know, that's not even real. And it just takes the whole mystique out of it. But because you're a kid, you don't hear it. You know, but well, you don't you, care. <laughs> you just don't care. Yeah. And then when you grow up, it's just like, holy shit, man, that was terrible. That was great. You know? <laughs> it was so bad. It was great. So, um, yeah, man, I know, I know he, uh, I always, I always loved his finishing move, uh, the million dollar dream. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, the way he would kind of twist guys back and forth. And then when they go down, he, uh, he was, he was always walking over to Virgil or even he, 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 uh, later teamed up with Gary Sherry, Sensational Sherry or whatever, um, after Virgil left. And then just the fact that he, he grabbed the, uh, the $100 bill. Well, he's got, he's, he's in a match. He's featured in a, in a match against Virgil for the belt. And he's got Scary Sherry next to him. Yeah. So he, yeah. Hooked, he hooked up with her before he hooked up with Virgil and he just beat Virgil. I think this was after, man. I really do. I think this was No, after. I'm watching it right now. Scary Cheryl is with him right now, unless that's not Scary Sherry. But no, I, yeah, with the, she had the jacked up makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this was after Virgil separated from Ted DiBiase. And, um, uh, and because there was the uh, uprising of Rowdy Piper got involved and started planting seeds in, into Virgil's mind about how he's being used and how he's being bought or whatever, and he could stand on his own. Uh, so then Virgil, after being disrespected enough, he basically he split up from Ted DiBiase. He beat him multiple times. And then, uh, DiBiase, then, uh, he, he didn't actually win the fight because the repo man came out to take DiBiase's million dollar belt. Yeah, that's, that's the match I'm watching right now. Yeah, which Virgil had because he beat seven DiBiase multiple times. And then, uh, when the repo man comes out, uh, spoiler, I'm sorry, Paul, I'm ruining the experience for you. No, it's already happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the repo man takes the belt and Virgil wants to stop. The repo. Yeah, he gets hit on the head with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then a repo man ducks out with the belt, and Ted DiBiase goes ahead and takes the win. And as he's about to implant the Ted DiBiase hundred dollar bill, like the majority of his bills, I remember they had his face on it, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's gonna shove it in Virgil's mouth, and then uh, Tito Santana comes running out during the time when he was the matador, uh, and then stops it because he just can't watch. No, you can't watch this injustice. Yeah. <laughs> this is just not right. So, uh, of course, he throws the DiBiase out of the ring. Sherry and DiBiase are pissed off. And later you find out that the repo man was hired on by Ted DiBiase uh, in order to do this distraction. And then, uh, yeah, that started a feud with, like, tag teams or whatever. But over time, Virgil's character died. Because what's the point of having Virgil's character if that conflict isn't there to uh, with Ted DiBiase? You know, like Ted DiBiase then later moved on to, like, Tito Santana and shit and whatever, but uh, they just couldn't hold on to uh, Virgil's interest for fan base. Um, but, yeah, man, I, I I remember it well because, you know, what, what do you do after you, you've earned the – earned the belt so nobly by, you know, becoming the world champion because of Andre the Giant, and then you lose the belt again in clearly an unjust manner. What do you do, you know? <laughs> you go ahead and you make your own belt, which Ted DiBiase had, had like a four-part series, which was basically put into four separate weeks of WWF, where he went to the store where he's just like, I forget what it is, but it's somewhere in Kentucky. And he's in a limo. He's in a limo, and he's just like, ah, I'm in such and such Kentucky, the richest area of the United States of America. Today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Yeah, and I and I and I googled it, and nothing comes up about Kentucky when you say richest part of America. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, but but I'm not saying Ted DiBiase is a liar. I'm just saying I find it. Okay, but apparently in Kentucky, <laughs> there at one point in time there was the mecca of, of <laughs> was in Kentucky, and he goes to his jewelry shop and he's just like, "Make me the million dollar belt." And uh, he shows up multiple times. He even shows up in a Dracula costume for him because I'm a. So that was the point of reference to in October. And uh, the beautiful thing about it is they decided we're just going to put a camera on you, Ted DiBiase, and we're just going to have you act. And and that was a really good move because that part about it is like there's these store people that are or I'll say hired on different actors and they're playing the role legitimately, but uh, Mr. DiBiase is clearly ad libbing to the point where the other actors are like, I got nothing to, I, I can't. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Where he, ah, I want my show me my belt. Ah, give me my belt right now. Clearly, I'm the man in the world. How's my belt doing? <laughs> and then the store clerk guy's like, um, you can just tell when the camera gets on. It's like, fuck, what? What? <laughs> uh, this is The belt is fine. You, I get what I want. Show me it right now. Um, yeah. So it's right over here, you know. <laughs> An awkward ass moment. It's so perfect because the revealing of the million dollar belt was on the brotherly love hour. And I don't know if you remember this fucking guy. <laughs> this dude, if I ever had the opportunity to do coke with anybody <laughs> off the top of my head, 
Brotherly love, brother love would definitely be in the mix. This guy is just sweating out the night before every time he gets on the camera, and he plays like this, like kind of like ultra uh, Christian or whatever. Like while while he interviews people, he wears a white suit, and red pink shirt underneath, and he's got like a white tie. And then they're playing the organ church music in the background constantly. It's fucking annoying as hell. He's got the slick back hair and glasses. And he's just sweating, and he always smiles. He's just like, I love you. Like the whole crowd just starts gluing his <laughs> and when they reveal the belt, uh, brotherly lo- brother love is like, oh, it's so beautiful. And while while million dollar man's making the maniacal laugh, and as his black butler Virgil wraps it around him, love gets down in a position where it looks like he's gonna start blowing him. <laughs> oh. It's so beautiful, and that's those are the moments, man. Those are the fucking moments where you're like, this is this is perfection. Like the 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 commitment without any skill behind it is just fucking amazing. So, uh, yeah, what that's uh that's the genius of Ted DiBiase, man. You know, it's crazy to me that he started the ministry, a 501c3 organization, which is nonprofit in the state of Mississippi. <laughs> Sure. And it is now like one of their lead preachers. It's the Heart of David Ministry website. It's an evangelical ministry, and it's tasked itself with <laughs> striving to dedicate followers to Christ <laughs> and for challenging men to attain a position of respect and integrity through righteous living, godly parenting, and priestly husbandhood. <laughs> For ministering to married couples struggling through their relationships and challenging them to base their relationship on the teachings of Christ. (laughs) This is so funny. Wait, what was what was it? Christly husbandhood? Is that was was that what you said? Godly parenting and priestly husbandhood. Whatever that means, priestly husbandhood. I love the way they term everything. It's so it's so stupid. Godly parenting. What does that even mean? If you read the Bible, I don't know if I would want to be a parent like God. Depends on depends on which part, right? No, no really, it doesn't. Uh, it's not good parenting, no matter which way you slice it. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's like do what I say or I'll kill you. And that's pretty much the theme. And then he actually does kill his son in the end. Does kill, so. his, son. Does kill his son. And he did uh he did knock up a virgin. Yeah, he raped a virgin. Uh can't say that it was consensual. <laughs> and then killed the then killed the offspring <laughs> in a murderous, horrific act. Of torture. Yeah. This is kind of funny. So Ted DiBiase, because of the tremendous popularity of his professional wrestling and his own success as a superstar pro wrestler, Ted feels the platform God has given him is wide and diverse. He has a message for teenagers struggling with peer pressure, men struggling with everything from power and success <laughs> to sex, lust, pornography, drugs, and alcoholism. <laughs> Essentially, he's he's been totally corrupted by all of these things to the point where now he can talk about being totally corrupted by all of these things. Kind of sounds like he took the fun out of life, too. Man. I don't, I mean, he states in the webpage that God came to him and told him that this is what he was supposed to do. So it must be true. 
Right. It's yeah. fascinating because I think I think this just draws another parallel between what's the difference between his personal life and his stage life. He was a phony when he was a wrestler, and he is the ultimate phony now that God has called him to pastor to these people. It's like, could you get any more phony? <laughs> it's like yeah. the oldest. It's the oldest story in in you know in the book, right? It's it's, it's uh, God came to me and told me to do this, and now that's what he does. Like, he is the ultimate pony. The other thing is, is uh, the other moment is that stands out to me was when Ted DiBiase was with Virgil. <laughs> he was talking with the crowd, and he he said, I, I have money. I'm all about helping out the community, helping them out, you people, without money. Uh, in fact, I'll show you. Here, I'm going to grab somebody from the audience, and he grabs, he grabs this little black kid, and uh, Ted DiBiase has Virgil holding a basketball, and he's just like, hey, buddy, can you bounce the basketball? And the kid nods his head, like, okay, well, uh, bounce the basketball ten times, can you do that for me? So they bounce, the whole crowd gets behind him, and they're counting. He's like, good, good, just to prove I'm a nice guy, I want to give you the opportunity to earn $100. It was 500 actually. Oh, it was 500 Even better. Yeah. I want to give you the opportunity to win $500, and I need you to bounce the ball 20 times. Can you do that? It was 15. What's that? It was 15 times. Uh, perfect. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Are counting it. They get to 14, and Ted DiBiase kicks the fucking basketball. <laughs> 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 To be able for him to be like, oh, well, I can't rightfully give you the money because you hadn't earned it yet. He's like, sorry, buddy. And then the camera zooms in on the kid's face. And I think the kid truly thought for a second, even though they probably said, look, man, we'll give you the money afterwards. You know, whatever. We'll pay you, blah, 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 for doing this. I think the kid was a little thunderstruck, and he forgot. Because the the look on this kid's face (laughs) when they zoomed in on it. It was fucking priceless. Like they it just they had Ted DiBiase in the background laughing his ass off. It was uh that that's probably my most favorite Ted DiBiase moment. Yeah, I mean it it, it certainly showed uh how crazy I mean that seemed to be uh, just a kid that he picked at random. I mean it, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was staged, but it seemed to be a kid that he picked at random. And that kid was really young. That kid was like 6 or 7. Yeah. And he he really didn't understand what was going on in a, in a in a real sense, and he re- he really did bounce the ball fifteen times, and DiBiase kicked it, and then was like, "If you don't get the job done, you don't get paid." And he kept saying that, and then he said the same thing on an on an Arsenio Hall interview later about that event. He and Virgil went on Arsenio Hall, and Arsenio was you know shooting the shit with him and, and joking around as as he does. And and uh, they were being all serious and and arrogant and and as you know millionaires. All could do. As, uh, he was so bad, dude. <laughs> he was awesome. I loved Arsenio Hall. Did you I really used to watch that? Sh- yeah, I used to watch that show all the time, and I loved Arsenio Hall. Um, I haven't watched it like recently. I haven't rebooted it yet on on YouTube or whatever. But I always really enjoyed the show as a kid. And I think it was because Arsenio wasn't like your traditional interviewer. He wasn't, he, he, he was more of a comedian than anything. Even though a lot of interviewers start off as comedians, he never really made the transition to interviewer. He, he always asked 
strange questions that were not quite on point. He never really dug below the surface. He, it was all about showmanship. That's a good point. And I did, I did like that as a kid. I thought that that was fun. And he always had a lot. I mean, a lot of people wanted to be on the Arsenio Hall show. He was like the most popular interview show, at least for a couple years. Yeah, yeah. And it's because he was Arsenio, because he was really good friends with Eddie Murphy, and you know, he you knew him from all of his movies, and and he, you know, he was. He was uh, one of the voices from the real Ghostbusters, and he was in a lot of stuff that kids watched at that time. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he was a pop culture icon. And he had a pretty good following. That was back when In Living Color was really big. That was back when there was a lot of, of black TV going on, and it wasn't BET. You know what I mean? It was mainstream black TV, Fresh Prince, all that stuff was on, and it, it was like kind of their golden age in TV. That's since kind of gone to the wayside but well he was riding the big wave there was like that big resurgence of black culture and in entertainment and it was it, it was gangster rap and it was the success of basketball it was the michael jordan era you know what i mean like there was just so many prominent black entertainers at the time and he just happened to be one of the guys that sort of rose to the top through affiliation right right and everybody wanted to talk to him because he knew a lot of basketball players he knew a lot of people in the business of entertaining and so it was easy to it was easy to plug him in and he was he was like uh he wasn't too edgy he was easy to digest for white culture right like he yeah. wasn't this imposing black man who was trying to, you know, down with Whitey. He was just happy and comical and funny and yeah. kind of just joked around with everything. I mean, Million Dollar Man walked on to his into his studio with essentially a slave, and yeah. they were cracking jokes about it. I mean, Virgil was right there, and he was he, he was essentially Ted DiBiase's yeah. slave, and and Arsenio had nothing to say about it. It was all just a joke. It was all just for fun, you know. Oh, he had, he, had, he had amazing interviews with wrestlers. Like, that's, that's where they went. To. Yeah. He had Macho Man Randy Savage. He had Hulk. He had DiBiase. He had Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, he had Ultimate Warrior, Andre the Giant. I mean, a lot of those guys went on to that show. But that was because Arsenio Hall was the talk show guy for kids. He was the talk show guy for people under the age of 20. Let's bring it back to the culture. Yeah, so I was going to talk about that a little bit, and I touched on it the last time. And there's two things about this that really, to me, stand out as interesting phenomena. The first is that we, as a culture, embraced wrestling as if it were real. And in some sense, I feel like, and this is sort of a deep dive, so pardon me, but after reflecting back on it, I think it tells a lot about how far we've come as a society that we can watch something that we know is fake, we know nobody's getting hurt, and we can get behind it and elevate it to this level as something that we actually can, we'll say, this is entertainment, this is what we want. We don't actually want people to get hurt. We just want drama. We just want a lot of huff and puff. We want a lot of spitting and sweat and acrobatics and, and just, it shows, it shows a certain level of, of separation from actual barbarism, which I think, I think we've digressed with the UFC. I think, I think we've been reseduced back into this barbarism. Although the UFC brings along with it a whole bunch of other technique and skill 
and real, you know, mastery of martial arts that, that probably sets it on another level, right? Yeah. But it, is, but it is barbaric. I mean, they are literally trying to kill each other, and the only reason they're not is because there's a guy that stops them from doing that. I mean, they don't stop choking until the guy says stop choking. You know what I mean? And, and so... Yeah. But but to get back to wrestling, it shows a certain a certain it's possible anyway for us to get really excited and and really entertained by people faking it, by people not actually being barbarians. They're just pretending. And I thought that was I, I don't know. I was going to ask you more about what you thought of that. I think that's that's a real progress of some kind. There's a flip side to that, but but what do you think about that? Yeah, it 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 was like. Watching uh, vaudeville as a kid, and then watching good versus evil, and it was just really, it was just really simple. Yeah, uh, it was so entertaining, and it was, it, you know, it's not like you're watching one show; you're watching the same show multiple times, and you're doing it with different flavor as far as who the characters were. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got that fix of good versus evil, and if if uh, evil won, it wasn't over. You know what I mean? Like uh, the good was going to have a rematch, right? Right. Address it type of thing. And there's also this idea of like, all right, well, if the good usually lost because uh, because the bad had to cheat, right? Right. And you're kind of like, oh, that's so unfair. And then, of course, over time, they'd bring it back and be like, oh, look, the good win. You know, you can't just cheat your way through it. So it was just, it's just really simple storytelling. I mean, they're, they're comic book characters, you know what I mean? And, and then you start seeing color elements of uh, uh, human nature in, in a really simple form. Because as, as time went on, the bad guys started to get more and more popular. Uh, and, and that was attracting that type of audience. And I think that's kind of how the sport evolved into what it is today, um, where, you know, you're no longer rooting for the guy coming out in the, uh, in the bright tights with the, uh, with the bird hanging off of his shoulder as he's doing the bird dance, Coco beware. <laughs> You're going for the guy who's walking out there going, you know, slamming beers and uh, trying to be the ultimate badass, you know. Um, so that's the difference between what's going on from back then and what's going on now. So that, I think that's why it was so so entertaining because as a kid, man, you're you're attracted to that. You're just like, oh, this is, here's, here's a bunch of big dudes running around and all the bad guys are annoying and everything and uh I think if you look at the flip side and this is the part so the the first side of the coin that I that I talked about was kind of uplifting right it's like we don't have to actually kill each other to be entertained we don't have to actually have the you know barbarism on display in our in our society to to have these same kinds of feelings in other words we can watch something that's totally fake and still have all the same sort of bloodlust and, you know, out-of-date, under-evolved parts of our brains satisfied, right? We don't actually have to watch people kill each other. <laughs> but that's the, that's the good side, right? That's the positive side. Right. The flip side to that is that we're so easily seduced by this. I mean, it's so obviously ridiculous. <laughs> and it's so I mean this to me is a wrestling this this wrestling phenomena shows how women, men, children all can be completely seduced by just ridiculous archaic 
human tendencies. You know, displays of power, pounding on your chest. Uh, it, you know, it, it gets more complicated than that with money and, and prowess and stuff like that and sex. And I mean, a lot of these guys, that's all it was, was it was a lot of talk, a lot of chest pounding, and then a lot of sex. You know, Ravishing Rick Rude was not trying to be uh, anything other than sexy. He was trying to be sexy at throughout the entire match. I mean, he, he would pause and yeah. shake his hips and flex his stomach. And you know what I mean? He would do all that kind of stuff. It, it's funny that it, the downside is that even though we, we really haven't evolved as a culture past that and into anything that's more substantial or anything that's actually more intellectual, it, it's a win in some ways because it's not actual destruction of another person, but it's it's a loss in other ways because there are people that are actually fooled by this for one. And then for two, there's so many people that are drawn to it. It's not obsolete. It's not something that we're like, yeah, no, that's something that would be cool. Like a hundred years ago. Sure. I mean, it was, it was a catalyst when it came down to those aspects and, and, you know, just uh, bring it back to Didiasi. uh, His, his son tried to get involved in uh, WWF and he had, they gave him like kind of like the same persona, and they gave him a girl um, that he'd walk around with. And then Didiasi was like, "You got to uh, start treating her because his son's character wasn't really taken off. He, he's just like, you got to start treating her like Macho Man treated Elizabeth, like really shitty, you know." <laughs> Uh, his son was like, I can't do that. And he's just like, what do you mean he can't do that? And he's like, well, that they you can't do that in wrestling anymore because of the audience. Like, they won't, they don't allow it. But that, it is a, a very strong example as far as what was uh, going on in our society back then. There's no way Ted, there'd be a Ted DiBiase character today to where he's walking around with a black uh, butler, you know. <laughs> It's just not going to happen. That's opening up doors for him and everything, you know. It's like somebody would cry out like, oh, yes, Massa, you know, I'll be a good slave for you. You know, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly today because everybody would be up in arms about it. And that's what's just, you know, it's it's just so fascinating because it was such a basic form of entertainment. I think it's interesting that these, these, uh, and maybe this is just a coincidence, so correct me if I'm wrong, but. This was really popular in the Rust Belt and the Midwest. And it it was really popular in North, predominantly white. And I I say that just because the South, you could say, is predominantly white also, but a slightly different demographic. This was really popular in Ohio and Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa and Indiana and, and, you know, right along the Rust Belt there, even into the East Coast. But it seems that they were that they had more of a following in the Midwest. And that's interesting because that is, in in my view, the Midwest is essentially an ultra-racist, ultra-misogynistic uh, communi- society that is essentially speckled with areas that have a more liberal outlook. Like you... You go to you go to rural Minnesota and you find racist and misogynist and and they loved wrestling because it really it really highlighted that aspect of their personality or that that aspect of what they thought was 
was true. I mean, I guess I'm I'm biased because I'm only really talking about the people I knew when I lived there. Sure. But most of the people I knew when I lived there talked down to minorities. They talked down to women. They spoke badly about them. They were prejudiced or racist or sexist against them. And the really only acceptable person was a white man. And that's sure. what you see really dominating pro wrestling is white men. And the way that they dominate is by subjugating women and subjugating uh, with to, slightly to a slightly lesser degree. But, you know, the million dollar man is a great example of this subjugating minorities or just people in general, other people, but specifically minorities in his case. Sure. Now, that, that doesn't mean, though, that they didn't have, you know, really good black and Asian and, and people of other color, you know, people of color wrestlers. But I mean, the big, big, big stars were white. Yeah. They were all white. And yep. usually the black guys were described as having no friends or, you know, having alliances with no one. They were loners. They were, you know, I don't, I didn't hear a lot of talk about Virgil, but there's, um, what's his name? The other, the, the black guy I'm thinking of was like bad Leroy Brown or something like that, but it wasn't bad Leroy Brown. It was, it was like that though. It was like bad news Brown. Bad news Brown. Yeah. So junkyard dog. Yeah. These guys all were considered outliers. They had their moment in the sun. A lot of the times they won a lot of matches, but they were considered the worst of the worst. They were the enemy of everybody. And, and it was, it was strange to hear that narrative intermingled in there. And I, I'm wondering if, if, I don't know, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, I can't help but, uh, you know, I can only go so far with that, but I, I think that if I was a black kid watching wrestling, I'd probably be rooting for these guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'd be like, I'd be all about, you know, uh, the junkyard dog dropping a brain buster. It, it, it just kind of shows, it, it's like a weird way of doing a census. Like you can you can tell kind of what's going on with society by this little micro uh, lens around this population of, of fan base, and you know maybe maybe that's why that era was so great because we didn't we didn't really know what was going on in society at the time when we were kids. You know we're just watching this and we kind of went off of that. <laughs> but it, it just seemed like it was it was uh, definitely sexist. It was definitely racist. Wrestling fooled a lot of people, and it's 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 amazing to me that it did because of how obviously fake it is and how clearly over the top it is. Yeah. And then what I really liked about it, and I think wrestling became sort of the soundboard for a lot of those people. I mean, the people that were dumb enough to be fooled by wrestling probably were the misogynistic, homophobic, you know, anti-feminist white men. At least that's what it seems. Those are the loudest voices. You know, <laughs> even Hulk Hogan, who was the noble, you know, wrestler, at least one of them, right? Yeah. He still was the white man. <laughs> like, there wasn't, you know, he was still beating up the rejects and freaks like Andre the Giant. He was still, you know, I mean, he had alliances with a lot of different wrestlers, but he was still, I guess, the good side of it. He was just pumped up on drugs and all about himself. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It, it, there wasn't much good about it, but at least he was better than Ted DiBiase, right? <laughs> 
at least he was better than some of these other guys who were just outwardly. Or I love the Akeem, the we like our Africans white wrestler, <laughs> right? Like if you're going to be black, at least you should look white, right? Like you can throw your arms around like you're black and you can talk like you're black and you can stomp around with a, a flag of the continent of Africa on your back and you can have, you know, a name like Akeem, but you're white. And that's how we like our blacks. We like them white. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was so, I don't know. It was, it, it, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm not making any sense, but. No, no, uh, no. I mean, it, look, man, it, it was successful. And you, you're just looking at it as far as like, why was it successful? And yeah. Because you're pointing out the obvious. Uh, and, and of course, we're looking back at, you know, from the outside looking in. And that's yeah. why it's so great, man. I, I, I see what you're saying, man, and I, and I think that too. It, it's just one of these things where it's a it's a prime. It's you can either look at it as an embarrassing moment in time. I or, do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but the the irony is that it's still going on today, and it's right. this whole and it's, it's it's been twisted up. And I'm not I'm not one to be embarrassed of it because I just think that it was so over the top and so ridiculous. And like you're saying, like it, it projected this. You know, uh, maybe, maybe people who are racist and homophobic. And the, the irony is, is that, you know, especially when it comes to homophobia, is there anything less PG rated that would entice homosexuality than two guys going in the ring, oiled up, physical specimens, <laughs> slapping each other around? You know, and some of those pins, you know what I mean, when they lift up the leg, it looks like they're mounting them. I just think that, you know, for something that was perceived as so macho and so guy-related, I love the fact that there was probably a lot of lot of guys who were coming to terms with their sexuality and, and becoming, coming out of the closet and were like, I fucking love wrestling. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like... And, and the shock that must come across, like, what? You know, how can you like wrestling? It's like, how can you not? Look at this. You know, uh, it's, it's fantastic. It's everything I ever wanted. Yeah. Well, sexuality is exactly that. It's to try to attract people that are sexually attracted to you, right? So... And it knows no boundary. It's not just going to attract women. It's going to attract men. It's going to attract hermaphrodites. It's going to attract whoever is attracted by that, right? Yeah. And so, it, yeah, I mean, the I guess I guess it, it's kind of like the David Lee Roth form of sexuality. David Lee Roth was clearly trying to be sexual towards anything that would respond. He. He wasn't clearly a man. He wasn't clearly a woman. He wasn't clearly trying to be masculine or clearly trying to be feminine. He wasn't clearly trying to turn on anybody except for those who turned their head and watched him, right? Like so many people, and I, I never liked David Lee Roth. As, even as a kid, I used to watch MTV and I, I used to listen to Van Halen, and I didn't like Van Halen. I, I didn't really like their music, first of all. Just it wasn't in my taste. It wasn't part of my taste. And I had terrible taste back then, but for some reason, I didn't like Van Halen. And then I would watch David Lee Roth, and I just was confused by him. I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand. But there were women and men that saw him pouting and shaking his shoulders and acting sort of pseudo feminine, masculine. I mean, he was just all over the board. I, I would imagine he was a lot like Pauly Shore, where it didn't really matter what you were as long as you were willing to fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
everybody's welcome. Come on in and get on the Dave train, you know? I just wasn't a fan. I, I thought he was entertaining in a sense. Like, he, he was very outlandish and it, it, outrageous. And he's certainly funny. He's not trying to be funny, but he's really funny because of how fucking weird he is. <laughs> I mean, but, as a, but as a musician, as a talent, I never really liked him. I didn't really like Van Halen, though, either. I just wasn't a fan of, of their style of music. Well... I mean, I, I didn't really appreciate David Lee Roth until basically the last, like, 10 years of my life, where yeah. so, it, it's so fucking ridiculous. It's awesome. But well, it's, he, a, it's in hindsight. Yeah. And he did he did some videos. Uh, I'll never forget the video where there was a bunch of white midgets in blackface. <laughs> Where you look at it, you're just like, my God, dude. Like, and, and, and he was going off on the whole idea where it's like, nothing, you know, you make fun of everything. And you're just like, yeah, but buddy, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't put a bunch of black, white midgets in suits and then paint them in blackface <laughs> and expect people not to be like, all right, you're a fucking coked up moron, you know. Uh, but even though I, I, I'm so glad it got made, uh, I know it's wrong and I feel bad every time I watch it because I just start cracking up. But he, he basically tried to focus on like every stereotype and, and just bring it out in the open. And, and obviously he did it in a, in a really bad way. I mainly appreciate this genre of wrestling for the fact of how many mistakes occurred and and how it was so simple stupid yet it's still you can look back on it and just be so entertained because of those reasons but uh it is concerning that there are people that look back on it and hold it in a different value and, and base decisions on their life off of the sports entertainment <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a connection between people watching violence and people committing violence i'm not sure that that's a that that's a connection that can be made well, I mean, I will, they, they're sure harping on video games now, and kids play video games now. You know what I mean? They, yeah, I know that that's a narrative. I'm just not sure that that's true. Yeah. I, like, I, I'm not convinced that that's true. I, I know that that is something that people say, and I know that that's something that people harp on, but I, I'm just not sure that that's a true narrative or that that's a true correlation that can be drawn. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of that narrative because it doesn't seem to me that that there was a outbreak of violence as soon as video games hit the scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just not getting the impression that that people. Why? Well, and I shouldn't say it quite like that, but I don't have a lot of like research data to back this up. But the stuff that I have looked into doesn't. There's they're, they're either unsure or they're saying that probably not. And there's no reason to think that we are that we're violent for any other reason other than that we're human beings. Human beings are violent. That's part of our evolutionary path, and we come from horrible, horrible violence. But the idea that we're moving away from that is, I think, clearly a move in the right direction, but our fascination with violence may never go away. Our, 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 our taste to commit violence might diminish. And I think it has. I think it has over the, over the, the decades and the centuries. I think as a people, we've become much less reluctant to actually be violent. But watching violence is still exciting and it's still entertaining. Um, and that's, that's what I was talking about. That kind of brings it around full circle. That's kind of what I was talking about when I, when I first started, when I first brought up that, it's sort of a positive that we got into wrestling as a people because that's a that is a way to express violence without actually hurting anybody. Yep. So it's a it's a form of progress of a sort. The flip side to that obviously is that some people thought it was real, so they're stupid. <laughs> 
So it sort of takes advantage in a way or highlights how stupid people can still be. But to get back to the violent point, I'm not sure that watching violence is ever going to get old. But committing violence and being a part of something violent, I think we're moving away from that. And and I understand, I mean, I get why they would make, you know, children's shows less violent um, because there is so much violence everywhere else in entertainment. I mean, violence is entertaining. And so much of the entertainment industry is based on violence, as is sex. Sex and violence are very entertaining. We're never going to get old. We're never going to get sick of watching people fuck, okay? That's just never going to happen. We're never going to get sick of having sex. We're never going to get, get sick of watching it. We might get sick of beating each other to death, but we might not ever really get past this fascination we have with violence. It, it is exciting. I mean, there's there's no way around it. So, I love you, Ted DiBiase. <laughs> and I want to thank you, Ted DiBiase, for being a part of my childhood, being a part of the, of the wrestling uh, sports entertainment phenomenon. Uh, to me, Ted DiBiase, uh, you were one of the greatest evil characters that ever, uh, that ever stood foot in that So, I salute you, Ted. Just fuck.